morning as your people with the desire to worship you, to express our worship of you. We do need to have our eyes open to see your character and its glory, Lord. We do need you to open our minds to understand what your word has to say about your worth. So, Father, as we turn to your word this morning, would you give us eyes to see that and ears to hear that, hearts to receive it, and a willingness to obey that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. We finally come back to our study in the book of Romans. And uh, this month of March, we'll finish up uh, our look in this particular book. Romans 13, specifically, we're going to look at verses 11 through 14, which is where we left off. So would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's word. Do you have a seat? Well, when I was in college, I lived in a fraternity house, and uh, a lot of interesting things happened in fraternity houses, as you can probably guess, especially those who, who lived in one during college. And uh, a lot of those things that happened in a fraternity house have to do with nighttime activities, uh, usually accompanied with a bit of ale. <laughs> Try to think of a proper word. Um, Often, our fraternity would do things uh, even during the weeknights with other groups on campus. For often, for example, we would invite a sorority to come over, and we would have a social or a mixer, or whatever you want to call it, and there would be lots of alcohol flowing, and there would be lots of music playing, and there would lots of be revelries up into the late wee hours of the night. Uh, and what's interesting is that you realize in a fraternity that mornings always come after the night. And especially when you do those during the weekday, classes come with those mornings. And so you have to make this grand shift from the activities that are associated with nighttime suddenly to activities that are clearly marked out for the daytime. For example, you, they would get up, you would hear on those, week, those weekday mornings, many alarm clocks going off. And you would hear as you walk down the hall, ringing after ringing after ringing after ringing. Sometimes I still hear that in my house. <laughs> but you hear those alarm bells signaling that the day has begun. And then the activities, you'll notice, don't look anything like they did the night before. Guys would get up. They'd make their way to the dining hall. They'd get some breakfast. They might have a cup of coffee. They'd sling their backpack on their back. And they'd march off to go to their first class. And then they'd engage in the classroom activities. And then after class, they might if they were a good student, go to the library or somewhere else and they'd study and do their work. So the daytime activities are very distinct and very separate from the evening activities. 
And that's a great analogy, essentially, for what Paul is doing at this point in his letter. He's saying, in essence, look, there's a difference between nighttime activity and daytime activity. And the difference that separates the two is an alarm clock, (laughs) is an alarm. And he's saying to us, it's ringing. It's ringing now. That's kind of his message. There is a sense of urgency. Now, let's just back up a little bit and think, where are we in the context of the book of Romans? Because Romans is a book that Paul, the Apostle Paul, had written to the church in Rome. It's a a church he had never visited for, presumably. And so he's writing in order to lay down a thorough description of what it is that he teaches and preaches wherever he goes to plant new churches. And so in it, we have this grand masterpiece of of a kind of an exploration of what exactly is the gospel. In a nutshell, he opens up to say the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And then he begins to expound that. We need the gospel. We need this work of salvation in our lives because all of us, he exposes this fact, stand guilty before God that we are all liable to judgment. That our hearts, if left to themselves, would never lead us toward God. So the gospel is the good news that God initiates and comes to us and begins to bring salvation. And as the book begins to expound, it explains he he brings this salvation to specifically those who put their faith in him. So it is through this faith that he brings about this work of salvation in the life of a believer. And as a result of of expressing that faith, the Holy Spirit becomes present in the life of a believer to transform him from the inside out so that what is happening on the inside with the righteousness of Christ accomplished for us on the cross being credited to our accounts begins to reflect the way we live on the outside because of this work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so these first 11 verses in his book, he's describing explicitly what is God doing explicitly to do this work of salvation in you. And then he gets to verse 12, or chapters 12 through 16, and he expounds, well, how are we to live knowing these things to be true? How do we live in light of the mercies of God expounded in this good news of the gospel? And so that's where we are in chapter 13. We're in the context of that 12 through 16, which is explaining this is how you to live as a result of the fact that God has done a great work in you. And he's beginning to, and and he starts out by talking about kind of literally the way you would live, the activities that you are to engage in, how you are to be at work training your mind to rethink, to renew itself after the work of God. You are to be loving each other. You are to be using your gifts. You are to be treating people this way and that way, submitting to your government. So it's talking about specific ways in which we are to live. But at this particular passage in chapter 13, he's pausing for just a moment. Rather than talking about the detailed ways in which your life is supposed to look, he's pausing because he wants to emphasize that what he's telling you about the way you are to live it has some urgency to it. He's not just telling you because it's a good idea for you someday down the road to change your life to match these things. He's saying, no, there is some urgency to it. The alarm is going off. It's ringing. The, day, the, the nighttime activities are ceased. The way that you used to live have, are ceased. They are now behind you. You are to live with the responsibilities of the day. So that's the idea. So I want to kind of expound this. It's, it's, it's really put forth in a fairly straightforward and simple way. First of all, we're going to talk about his commands to one, be awake. Be awake. 
Second, the command to cast off the works of darkness. And lastly, to put on the armor of light. Wake up, cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. That's kind of where we're going. So first of all, we address this urgency. Wake up. It is time for you to wake up. The alarm is ringing. This is how he begins the section in verse 11, if you look at it with me. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. You know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Remember, he's already been exhorting them to live in a different way, but now he's emphasizing something about the time in which we live. He uses the phrase, the hour, the hour has come for you. The the hour has come for me. You know the time. You think, well, what exactly is he referring to? Well, often we will find that in the New Testament, especially when you hear the reference to the hour has come upon you, the hour has come, he's referring to an eschatological time frame of what God is doing in the course of his grand plan of salvation. We're getting to the plan, we're getting to the time in which God is coming. The hour has come. The hour has come for what? For God to come. For God to come and visit his people. We find this in reference to specifically to the work of salvation, that's how he continues, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. There is an aspect that something is coming. Now let's look at the way Jesus has used that phrase. For example, in John chapter 12, because he uses this phrase a bunch, John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Mark chapter 14, verse 41, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The hour for what? The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So it's it's clearly indicative when he's talking about the hour has come, He's talking about God is coming, and with regard to Jesus, God is coming to bring judgment upon him. Judgment upon him for those whose faith is in him. So God is coming, and he's bringing judgment with him. And that's important because judgment is an aspect of salvation. When you hear that God is bringing salvation, what does that mean? For salvation for those who belong to God to occur, judgment has to happen on those who have been oppressing God's people. Whatever those or that might be, judgment is coming. That's not the only time we hear this phrase. We also hear it in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, for example, beginning in verse 6. He writes, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So here again, it's a reference to the fact that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. When he says the hour of coming, God is coming. And when he comes, he's bringing judgment. Now, why does, why does he do this? Well, he's doing this to emphasize the need to change the way that you're living. Because clearly there is a way of living that lines up with what the culture says is the way you are to live, and there's a way that you are to live that lines up with the way Christ says that you are to live. And they contrast one another. And he's saying that to the church because he's noticing that in the church, 
A lot of people live with one foot as if they have in both places. You live as though you live in the Roman culture, but you profess a faith that says you belong to the citizenship of heaven. He's saying, look, the time is coming. The hour has come. You need to wake up. Stop living as though it's nighttime in those activities and live with the activities that go along with being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. There is a, there's an urgency of time. Now, Matthew gives some interesting, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus in the book of Matthew gives some interesting parables that talk about this importance of this. And, he, and, and one he talks about in chapter 25, it's often referred to as the parable of the ten virgins, of these women who take their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. And this is the message. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The idea is that you are to live with the fact that it might be today. It might be tomorrow. The whole idea is when he comes, when the Lord comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith being expressed, being lived out in your life? There's another parable that he gives right after that. It's talking about, it's called often the parable of the talents, where he gives talents to certain of his stewards, and he goes away for a while. And when he comes back, he asks for an accounting of what did you do with the talents that I gave you? And two of them invested them. And they bore fruit. And the other one buried his talents in the ground. And the two that invested the talents that the Lord had given to them are commended and welcome him to the kingdom. And the one who did nothing but buried it in the sand, buried it in the ground, is cast out. Essentially, I never knew you, you wicked servant. Again, the question becomes, you yourselves are all, if you've made a profession of faith, have been given talents, spiritual gifts, blessings. The question is, how are you using those? Or have you buried them in the sand? For when he comes, he's going to find out. Are you a person whose faith is evident by the way that you're living? Or is it only cerebral? Is it only confessional? That's the big question. Wake up. The day is past. Our salvation is near. And now, I think that... Paul is specifically talking about the urgency to what was going to happen in the early days of the church, when the church wasn't sent under great persecution. Jerusalem itself was wiped out. So there was a time in which their, theirs was potentially short. Church history tradition would say that Paul himself died in Rome, perhaps when he was going not long to follow up after this message. He knew that judgment was coming. He knew that struggle was coming. And that same was true for the church that he's writing to. So there is an urgency to not wait any longer. 
If you've made a profession of faith, but you don't live that out, well, wake up. The alarm is ringing. The alarm is ringing. Don't wait any longer. Now, what are we to do? Well, we're to cast off the works of darkness. The rest of the the passage unfolds like this. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So he's contrasting these two things, the works of darkness and the armor of light. One is proper for the daytime, one is associated with night. And he mentions these things, those things that were common to the ancient Roman culture that characterized nighttime activities in Rome. That's what he's doing here. When he's saying the orgies, the drunkenness, the sexual immorality, the sensuality, the quarreling and jealousy. Well, they didn't engage in those things during the daytime when they actually had jobs to do. They engaged in those things when their jobs were done for the day and they would go back at night. So these were nighttime activities he's referring to. So that's the comparison that he's using. He's saying you are not to live this way. This is what he says is to be cast off. Now, our culture today is not all that different from Roman, ancient Roman culture, especially when you hear it described like this. I mean, it seems to be that we're shedding off the negative associations with lifestyles that are like that. More and more so. They're even being commended, perhaps. Recommended, perhaps. That we are to engage in activity like that whether it's the sexual immorality, whether it's the casual sex that goes along with, with, with people today, especially when they are looking to get married, the idea that, well, we'll just do this because it's a responsible thing to do. It gets a little twisted. Or you think about the, the propagation of pornography or prostitution or just the various forms of sexual perversions, and I say that because they go contrary to the parameters in which God has laid out how he's given sex, and, or, or all the various sensual desires that we seek to gratify. And it's, I don't think he's bringing those out to show that, well, these are just shameful and destructive for yourself. I think what he's pointing out is all these things are, are reflective of ways in which people in the culture are trying to scratch that itch that they feel. They're trying to satiate that hunger that they know inside. And this is something that makes them feel good in the moment. It makes them feel a measure of pleasure. It makes them feel something. And so they think, this is the thing that's going to scratch that itch that I know exists in my heart. Now, we have a name for that. We simply call that idolatry. Because what, we're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to fill the emptiness that only God can fill with something else. And that's the contrast between the... the uh, the works of darkness are those things that we try to pursue in order to satiate the longings that we have. He's saying, I need you to cast that off, and I want you to put on the armor of light, because the armor of light, the walking in the faith of the Lord, brings you into fellowship with God. That's the only thing that's going to scratch that itch. That is the only thing that you were meant to worship. That is what you were meant to live in fellowship with that will fill that void that you feel. So cast off the works of darkness. Cast off the pursuing of things that you're trying to fill the emptiness that only God 
can fill. And of course, lastly, he says, put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of light. Another way he's saying it is found in verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your hope. As Paul has expounded in the book of Romans, he says, God's righteousness is revealed and explicitly it's revealed in the person, the work of Jesus Christ, who came and lived the life that you were supposed to live and died the death that you deserve to die so that his righteousness might be credited to those who believe. So you are to put on this righteousness. You are to live in light of this righteousness. That's what he's saying to do. And he calls it interesting. He calls it armor. And you think, why do people put on armor? Exactly. Armor is a defense. It's a defense against what? It's a defense against the fiery darts of an enemy who wants to harm you. So somehow, by putting on armor, it is fending off the fiery darts that are coming at you from the enemy. What's the form of those fiery darts? Well, they can come in the form of temptation. If you are walking in the light, which brings you into an experience of the fellowship with God, then you know something about your soul finding a measure of satiation, and it helps you to resist the temptations. Even as James said last week, if you draw near to God, you are able to resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is a form of armor. By choosing to walk in this way, in the way that Paul has been saying we are to live, it functions as an armor, which turns the light on, on reality to you. And it helps you not only resist the temptations, but also the accusations that the enemy would throw at you. Because what does it remind you of? When you walk in a way that is exhibition of your true faith, it is showing there is evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because we are empowered to walk that way by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's by the practice of that faith, because of the reality that the Holy Spirit has been given to us, that there is evidence to know that we belong to God. Evidence to know that we have the righteousness of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that walk in this way so that God will approve of you. I'm saying that when you walk this way, it is evidence that He has approved of you. And that functions as a form of armor against the accusations that the devil would throw at you. Because He'll come and say, you are guilty. And you know what? He's right. (laughs) But we have a defense against that. We have the righteousness of Christ accredited to our account. And the way in which we know that's a reality is because the Holy Spirit accompanies that righteousness and enables us to live out our faith. So when you are walking in darkness, it brings a big question mark to whether or not there is evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you see the connection? We fail to have this armor protecting us from the accusations of the enemy. So we are to cast off the works of darkness And we're to put on the armor of light. Now let's talk some practically for just a minute to think, well, how do you do that exactly? How do you put on this army of light? I'm going to give you two applications that I think will help. First, you are to remember. Look at how this section in chapter 12 starts in verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So first, how do you do this? How do you put on the armor of light? Well, 
You, you seek to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You have to learn how to rethink about life. You have to reshape the way you view the world. We call that a worldview, if you want to think of it that way. So we have to, we have to reorient the way we think about the world. And the, how do you do that? Well, you do that. What is the ordinary means of grace are what the reformers explained to us. This is what God has given you in order to bring about the renewal of the mind. Attentiveness to the word of God, to the sacraments, and to a life of prayer. And when he talks about attentiveness to the word of God, that can mean both the private reading of scripture and studying it, meditating upon it, and letting it penetrate your heart, but also the attending to the preached word of God. And while it may not be inerrant like the written word of God, it is God's ordained means by which he brings application of the word to his people in the specific context and setting in which they live. That means being committed to worship and the teaching of the church. So how do you put on the alarm? You, may, you need to make a commitment. You need to make a commitment to be attending worship where your mind is being renewed. Because I want to be a little bit frank and challenge some of you. Some of you aren't regular. You haven't made that commitment. You come some Sundays and you have a foot in the citizenship of the kingdom, but many Sundays you have a foot in the activities of the world. You're still caught on the fence. You're caught in between. You're still engaging in the nighttime activities sometimes and the daytime activities another times. But there is a time of day in which we live, and it's after the alarm bell has rung, not before. Some of you need to simply repent and make that commitment. The second thing I want to remind you of is what he says a little bit later on in chapter 12. He says, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Of course, Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 4 explains why you're using them. You're using them because you're bought, part of the body of Christ, being equipped for the work of ministry for the purpose of bringing the full body to its maturity in Christ. That means every one of you out here, if you've made a profession of faith and have the Holy Spirit in you, He has given you a unique spiritual gift in proportion to your faith with the expectation that you are using it for the building up of the body of Christ. Now let's be frank again. Some of you do that. Some of you don't. Some of you are not engaging, using your gifts in the work of building up the body of Christ. You come, perhaps on occasion, you hear preaching, you participate in the singing, but you exercise no gift in the building up of the body of Christ. You've made no commitment to the body of Christ. So I think when Paul is saying the alarm is ringing, there is this implicit call, perhaps, to repentance for my choosing to have a foot in both worlds, of not making the commitment to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light, to engage in the work of renewing your mind and committing yourself to exercising the gifts that you uniquely have been given for the building up of the body of Christ. It may be this morning 
that the gospel is calling you to make a new commitment. Maybe it means going before the Lord and just in a time of repentance. Maybe it means expressing to him a measure of excitement, a willingness to come and talk to somebody, an elder, a deacon about, hey, I want to get involved. I want to join a small group. I want to find out what my gifts are. I don't even know what they are. We can help you do that, by the way. We have this excellent tool that we call a spiritual gift assessment tool, and it's pretty comprehensive. It actually involves you answering uh, several different forms of questionnaires. It also has interviews that we do with people who know you <laughs> to help understand, well, how is it the Lord has uniquely gifted me that I might exercise those gifts? So this is the time, the day that we live in. The gospel is real. The salvation of God is upon us. We've seen it be unfolding in the course of history. God has already sent Jesus Christ into the world to pay for our guilt, our shame, our sin, so that we might walk a new life. And the alarm is ringing. It's time to start doing that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the work of Jesus Christ. That he was not half-hearted in the mission that you sent him on to do. He did not have a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom. He gave up his entire life for the purpose of bringing salvation to those that are yours, those who have put their faith in you. Lord, it is time for us to make our profession become something more than a profession, to become a real commitment to walking with you, to being among your people, to seeing your church being built up, that your name might be glorified. Lord, I pray that you would touch every person here this morning with the application of where do they need to, to take action? What is the next step they need to do? Maybe for some it is to simply make an, their own profession of faith. Maybe there are young people here who have grown up in the church. They've been raised and discipled as though they had faith, but they've never made that profession their own. Maybe that's the step that needs to be taken. Or maybe the step is, well, I've made a profession of faith. I've joined the church. I'm here somewhat, but I'm not here on a regular basis. I still have my foot in other things related to this world. Maybe my, their step is to make that renewed commitment to be regular in worship. Maybe it's that next step to say, I need to find out what my gifts are. Maybe they know what their gifts are, and they simply need to find a place in which they can apply them. Lord, I pray that you would be at work in the hearts of each person here this morning to take that next step, whatever it might be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.